Uh, sometimes we've never met them in real life. And sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, they don't have our best intentions in mind. We've all heard the made-up fake news about politicians, celebrities, 5G causing COVID-19. And no, in case you saw this recently, CNN did not praise the Taliban for responsibly wearing masks while taking over Afghanistan. Fake news is synonymous with Facebook. They removed 3.4 billion fake accounts a few years ago. That's incredible, not that they removed them. That many fake accounts were created in the first place. Have you ever heard of some guy by the name of Edward Bernays? He lived from 1891 to 1995. Well, let me tell you, he was the father of propaganda, a spin doctor. And on a side note, he was also Sigmund Freud's nephew. The guy was a complete genius, master marketeer who used psychology to sell ideas, things like fake news. Get this. When he started working for the American Tobacco Company, Bernays was given the job of increasing Lucky Strike sales among women. So he persuaded women to smoke cigarettes instead of eating. Bernays began promoting the idea of how great women look who are just thin, and he used photographers and artists, newspapers and magazines just to promote the beauty of thin women smoking. So medical authorities were found to promote the choice of cigarettes over sweets. Again, get this. Homemakers were told that keeping cigarettes on hand, well, that was a social necessity. But Bernays did something else. He was hired to promote the sales of bacon. So he conducted research and found that the American public ate a very light breakfast of coffee, maybe a roll, maybe some juice. So he went to his physician and found that a heavy breakfast was sounder from the standpoint of health than a light breakfast because the body loses energy during the night and it needs that energy during the day. So he asked his physician if he would be willing at no cost to write 5,000 physicians and ask them whether their judgment was the same as his. About 4,500 doctors answered back, all concurring that a big breakfast was better than just a light breakfast. So here comes the headline. 4,500 physicians urge bigger breakfasts. And they stated that bacon and eggs should be a central part of any breakfast. And as a result of all these actions, the sales of bacon went through the roof. What about cheap fast food chicken? That wasn't called that. It was called finger licking good. Mm, that was him too, by the way. If you want to know more about Edward Bernays, watch the 2002 documentary that was done on the BBC by Adam Curtis called The Century of the Self. It's phenomenal. And when you think about it, Bernays was selling fake news. And people bought it. They bought the products. And it's happening again. Only it's bigger and badder online. So coming up next in this episode of Kim Commando Explains, we're going to talk about fake news, why it's there, why you fall for it. So stay right where you are. What's the weirdest job you could think of? I can name a few off the top of my head. Well, you can get paid to hug strangers as a cuddle professional. You can pick worms. And if you have a taste for pet food, you can gobble down some dog chow to make sure that actually Fido will ever like it. Sounds delicious. I don't know about you. Hey, you can even examine newborn baby chicks to see if they're going to grow up to be a chicken or a rooster. You can also be paid to spread disinformation. That's right. Lying pays well because big players on the world stage use lies to keep us controlled and ignorant. The New York Times says that there's a whole new industry around disinformation. 
Do you want to convince the public to buy your product or lose trust in your competitor? Well, you can hire a firm to plant a few lies and then watch public opinion flip like a light switch. We even see lies turn the tide of modern wars. More on that later. But first, I want to clear up the air. If you've never heard of this term like disinformation, you might be a bit confused. Well, guess what? Lucky for you, I bought in the big guns to break it down. So joining us here on this Kim Commando Explains is Christy Roschke. She's the managing director of the News Collab at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism, Mass Communication at Arizona State University. What is a collab, Christy? Well, we're a collaborative lab, which essentially means that we do research in-house, but we also collaborate across a number of industries, including journalism, technology companies, educators. Um, and so collaboration is a big part of what we do to think about things like media literacy and mis- and disinformation. And that's exactly what we're talking about, disinformation. Let's start at the beginning. How would you describe, how would you explain, how would you define disinformation? Sure. So there's, you know, a couple of different definitions out there, but I think the definition we tend to use is that disinformation is any fraudulent information that gets into our information streams um, that is used, it is intentionally used uh, to sow discord, to confuse, to persuade, um, and to, like, to harm. So there is an intent there, a, a negative intent there. Some examples do you have a top sure. of your mind? I mean, uh, gosh, it's all over Facebook, it seems like. I saw one the other day that said uh, CNN praised the Taliban for responsibly wearing masks while taking over Afghanistan. I was like, oh, my gosh, really? No, that was false. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds false. But, you know, sometimes this disinformation is just so unbelievable that it's you know, makes people pause and say, could that really be true? So that's a great example of, of how disinformation sometimes works. So a lot of times we see foreign actors or other types of influence campaigns um, used um, to sow discord in a political sense, right? So oftentimes this is about power and conflict, uh, money, those kinds of things. And that works particularly well on social media. So you might see anything from someone creating a fake CNN article, for instance, to um, you know, bad actors trying to influence people sort of more organically and pumping out information that seems like it's from a plausible source, but it's actually not. So I think that the one example that's probably most resonant with people at this point is um, Russian meddling in the 2016 election. That's kind of where we really started to see disinformation sure. come into the public eye. And where it actually had a profound effect. Absolutely. Absolutely. On, on people's decision makings. So with disinformation... We want to persuade opinion. Uh, we want to put in some credible source like CNN or Fox News or who, so that this way it seems legitimate. And then it's also to entice an emotion, do you think? Oh, absolutely. So emotional appeal is a big part, you know, a big characteristic of, of practically all disinformation. And really, when you think about it, it's a big part of all information. You know, even positive, credible information often uses emotional appeal or emotional words to, or, you know, interesting kind of salacious words to kind of catch people's attention. So there certainly is an emotional element. One of the things I typically tell my students and people when we're talking about this is if something produces a very strong reaction, particularly if that reaction is anger or fear, it's a good time to kind of stop and, and take a beat and kind of think about where that information is coming from. Um, as you said, it might look like it's coming from CNN, but you know, not all disinformation takes the form of masquerading as a credible news organization. It could be a meme or you know, some kind of image that's taken out of context that gets shared across social media. Um, so yeah, I think the emotional 
aspect of it is is what makes it so successful often. So when we talk about disinformation, fake news, automatically it's like the other F, Facebook, right? So, but now they're trying to put a damper on it a little bit by fact checking. What's your experience? Are they doing an okay job at that? So it's a really complex problem, as I you know I know you know, and and there and Facebook and and other platforms, Twitter, uh, Google, YouTube. Um, even TikTok are investing a lot of money in things like fact checking. They also do a lot of labeling of information that they think is, um, you know, could be misleading or 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 mischaracterized with disinformation. They will sometimes remove information, although they try not to remove information unless it violates terms of service. So it's it's. You know, there is a lot of effort in this area, certainly much more than there was. And that's a direct response to what happened in 2016. And it continues to be, you know, technology platforms continue to be under scrutiny to do more. Um, But, you know, the systems are also just built to make it so easy. So even with all of these mitigation strategies in place, there's always going to be that aspect of, you know, Facebook and other platforms are designed to feed us information that attracts our attention. Yeah, and exactly. sometimes that is disinformation. And, and to keep us glued to the particular platform, right? I mean, well, absolutely. That's how they make their money, right? So as long as there's a business imperative to keeping us on those platforms, um, people will find a way to to add disinformation to the platforms. Yeah, the algorithms are just fascinating to me uh, about how we are being manipulated so that we keep our eyes on a particular topic, or it's going to feed us more things that we might be interested in. And so we only see news that we might agree to versus something else. Uh, and the same thing accordingly with YouTube. Um, what do you see with YouTube and disinformation and the conspiracy videos and how things are related and things that are suggested to you? Sure. So it's interesting because algorithms are both beneficial, but also can be harmful. You know, if you think about how Netflix works, for instance, they use algorithms to tell us what movie we should watch next based on the movie that we just watched. So that's a, a you know, a fairly benign use of an algorithm. And and certainly that's how these algorithms started out with, with YouTube and Facebook. It was, oh, you like this, let us show you more content that's, that's similar to this that will probably, again, keep you engaged for longer. Um, and so, again, what's happened with these systems is that they've been co-opted by people who are who are sharing, um, you know, extreme messages. Um, sometimes it's 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 dangerous. Sometimes it incites violence. Those are the kinds of things that we hope that those will be removed from those those sites. But um, you know, there is mixed mixed research out there about YouTube. So we've we've heard a lot about how that recommendation engine will feed up more and more extreme content to us as viewers and kind of you know, further potentially indoctrinate us to certain topics. But there's other research that suggests that maybe it's not as strong a pull as we think it is. Um, but but it is a it is a factor at work that a lot of people are just completely kind of unconscious to um, and don't really realize how it works. And so, you know, the next thing they know, they're watching content that that they they didn't mean to, they probably shouldn't have, and that can have lasting impact. Yeah, because once you see something, it's really hard to unsee it, isn't it? That's it's, right. It's that's like, right, and that's true for that's true for you know words too. Once you see a headline that um, again, maybe it makes you really angry. It's hard to unstick that from your brain. Or that relative that wants to keep putting it in your face. <laughs> it's like okay, if you thought the family reunions were bad, just wait until they get an anonymous voice, or they think they're anonymous on Facebook or someplace else. It's. Absolutely. It has certainly changed the discourse among friends and family. That's for sure. 
So when we start talking about disinformation, okay, of course, in order to find it, we're going to look for unusual URLs, right? I mean, if it ends in a, what, an IO or .co, I mean, chances are it's not these legitimate news sites. What what are you seeing as far as any other type of trends that, that can help people spot the disinformation? Yeah, so you, looking at URLs is certainly one way. Sometimes they are very suspicious. Sometimes they're not so suspicious. So it's not always a foolproof method, but that is one easy thing to look for. Similarly with emails or text messages, if it looks like it's coming from FedEx, you've probably gotten a text recently that tells you that your package wasn't able to be delivered. And so, you know, you need to call this phone number and that's really just a a classic phishing scam. So they say they're FedEx, but what is this number where it's coming from? So it's, it's important to take a minute to to investigate the source. Um, if you see a, something that comes across your path on social media, for instance, I, I like to tell people to do a quick internet search to see if, if other outlets are talking about that same thing. Um, if you can see that a number of news outlets have covered the same story, then it's kind of safety in numbers, right? That's a pretty good indication that that's a story that's 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 really generated from credible, credible sources. Sure. If you can't find it anywhere, um, then you know the reverse is true. And similarly, a quick internet search will often reveal if fact-checking organizations have already are already on the case for that particular story. Um, so, I mean, honestly, just a quick internet search can help a lot. And that's what I, I tell people um, to to stop and, and take that time especially when it's something that they care about. Because as you you know well know, we're not going to do that for everything. We're no. just bombarded with information all the time. Um, so it's not practical to think that we would do it with everything. But um, if we're really passionate about something, we should take the time to investigate. And before we share it with others, that's kind of the tip, the big tip I like to give. Before we we make others believe the same thing, let's stop and, and, and at least verify it uh, before we share it. Yeah, I mean, you know, just look at anything on social media that that uses the word vaccine. Okay, I mean, it's like, okay, I know you're for it. I know you're against it. I know you think it's going to give me hair on my chin. And I know you think that it's going to be bad for me 20 years from now. And the the same thing with uh, the Taliban on Twitter. I mean, you know, for some reason, the Taliban is allowed to be on Twitter talking about how great that they're doing in Afghanistan and bringing normalcy back to that part of the world. But meanwhile, I'm a former president, Trump, and I'm not for Trump or against Trump. I'm just saying that a former president can't get online. He's been banned for life. And so, you know, you have these type of instances that are very polarized that will spark that emotion that will, again, push that disinformation to the top of somebody's feed. That's right. So, I mean, this is all about conflict. The examples that you mentioned are are really they're, they're important conflicts of our time and, and, and they're top of mind for everyone. In the case of vaccines, it's also, you know, it's our public health at stake. Um, so, it, well, I mean, it, there's health and real health and safety concerns in both of the examples you've just given. I suspect the Taliban won't be on Twitter for much longer. I mean, that's just a guess. But there's also, I mean, so it's important to remember that this isn't just about like the news of the day and technology. They're really deep, you know, geopolitical, social, historical contexts here that make these things bubble to the surface and then the technology and the speed at which we can get information exacerbates these problems that were were that were already there right um and in some t- in some ways this can be helpful and in, mo- in other ways it can be very harmful 
and it's we're just sort of catching up to the the ramifications of all of this information being available. And you know, it's 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 interesting to think about the Taliban example. Twitter is an American company doing business in other countries, and depending on those countries, their terms of use may be different. Um, so there's other implications in terms of like what Twitter world rules are, say in Afghanistan, versus you know doing business in the U.S. And so the companies themselves are figuring this out as they go, too. So and, and so are so are you know policymakers and and heads of heads sure. of government. We're all we're all figuring this out at the same time. But behind that is just these really deep seated conflicts of of a variety of sorts that that cause these cause us to be, you know. I guess susceptible is a word um, to these messages. But I think your 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 advice of saying before you share it, before you react, just spend a couple of minutes, just do a little fact check, right? I mean, look at look at the layout, dig deep, do a little cross checking, uh, do a reverse image search. So if you see this crazy picture, just you know, upload the picture into Google and see where else it it appears, so that this way you're not you are not spreading fake news. You are not spreading disinformation. Christy, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. Bottom line, disinformation is everywhere. On your phone, in your social media feed, even on the battlefield. But why do so many people fall for the same old tricks? How can we recognize a lie before it just consumes us completely? Well, coming up next, psychological tricks to watch out for. I have some scary stories coming up. Did you know that social media lies help the Taliban take over Afghanistan? That's right. Disinformation can shake the foundation of societies around the world. That's why it's so important to stay aware. Coming up next, we're going to talk about the psychological tricks. So stay right where you are. Disinformation can take down even the best of us. It can take away our reality. After all, when lies are really all you know, how could you possibly recognize the truth? All right. Well, we're here to tell you what you need to know. Joining us now is Emerson Brooking. He's an expert who studies lies in real time, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. So, Emerson, tell us more about you. Sure. My name is Emerson Brooking. I'm a resident senior fellow at the Digital Forensic Research Lab of the Atlantic Council and co-author of Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. Disinformation can be especially scary because it's so easy to fall for. Let's tackle the psychology of everything. And let's just use broad strokes for just a moment. How do and why do so many people fall for these tricks? So when we talk about disinformation, we're talking specifically about false or misleading information that's intended to deceive. Where someone knows better, but they're still trying to guide you down a road toward believing that falsehood as well. So we think we know better than to fall for these falsehoods, but we really don't. And then they play upon our pride to lead us down to the conclusion that they want. So tell me, what are they really trying to get out of us when they're tricking us? They typically have a political or financial incentive to do that. And one thing, one reason that these campaigns are so insidious is that they often tell us what we want to hear. That's fascinating. Talk more about that. They play on our uh, confirmation bias. They tell us that our pre-existing political beliefs are correct. Or they tell us that there is a vast conspiracy and that you are 
uh, one of the few protagonists who understands the truth. Okay, so we're more likely to fall for lies that paint us as a part of an exclusive group. You know, the chosen ones, the enlightened people who know better than the rest. A lot of times disinformation offers uh, agency and meaning for people who have so little of it. Yeah, they're playing on our pride in a way. It's like they're appealing to our desires to feel better than everyone else. It reminds me of a survey from a few years ago. 65% of Americans think that they're smarter than average. Well, except for me. I know that I am. Sorry. But it comes down to cognitive bias. Most people tend to overestimate their own abilities, at least compared to the abilities of people around them. And that's not necessarily like a bad thing. Having self-confidence is healthy. But overconfidence, that's the difference. It can make you blind to your weak spots. And that's where disinformation sneaks in. So that's why we're so inclined to believe it. And the people who spread these falsehoods, they know all this. And so they, they target particular communities and demographics. Uh, they understand the stories that people want to hear. And they tell them, regardless of their bearing on the truth. So when people spread disinformation, they're often trying to play upon our emotions. Um, go more in depth on that. When, when someone is designing a so-called disinformation campaign, what are the weaknesses that they are really trying to exploit here? So the thing that plays most in all disinformation campaigns is outrage. Outrage and anger are the emotions that resonate the most online. Absolutely. When a website makes us feel strong emotions, we're going to stay on it much longer than, say, this boring website you just click off and you're like, okay, well, that was a complete waste of time. Uh, we have now 10 years of uh, psychological studies just looking at the spread of different sorts of viral content. And it's stuff that makes you angry that spreads the farthest. You're right, Emerson. And now that's, um, there's the obvious stuff. There's stuff like uh, war crimes or acts of brutality that you read about abroad. But it's more mundane stuff. Some of the most viral stories are um, stories that involve airlines uh, cheating people out of their miles or um, just being you know, mean to people and uh, cheating them out of what they deserve. Disinformation can be dangerous, but it can also be, well, I guess, pretty mundane. Even though it's just a story about, like, um, uh, airlines, it's also programmed in the same way to make you angry. Virtually all political news spreads by making you angry. And we talk, when we talk about the sort of the spectrum of emotions, um, these are emotions that have an element of psychological arousal. Okay, what does that mean exactly, Emerson? They fire you up. They make you want to do something. They make you mad. And that uh, we distinguish that from sympathetic emotions, emotions that um, bring you down a little bit. Sadness is a sympathetic emotion where you're feeling empathy for somebody. But sadness alone doesn't make you want to, you know, shout from the rooftops that something is wrong and to share it as widely as possible. It's anger that does that. Are there any particular psychological tricks disinformation campaigns use to, say, manipulate us? When we think about psychological tricks that incline us to believe something, um, we need to think about something called homophily, 
which means love of the same. And this is a human instinct that goes back thousands of years uh, where we are more inclined to believe people who are in our circle of trust, in our family or our local community. And this is generally a very positive um, attribute. It's what's helped us build civilizations. You have to, at a point, trust people in order to work together. How does this all relate to disinformation? But the problem is that the, uh, the internet sort of short-circuits this, and we feel the same trust toward people who are in our social network, people who are on our Facebook, uh, people who we follow for a long time on Twitter. We feel the same affinity for these people, even though uh, sometimes we've never met them in real life, and sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, they don't have our best intentions in mind. We extend them that same trust when they don't believe it, and that sort of uh, drives us to believe um, when they share dis or misinformation. And one other psychological trick is um, repetition. There have been several studies now where we, we've seen that even when you know something is untrue, even when it's obviously false, when it is repeated again and again, you become more likely to believe it or to give it a second look. Uh, a clear example of this happened during the 2016 election. There was a viral Facebook story that said that Pope Francis had endorsed Donald Trump as president. And this was a pretty absurd statement on the face. Most people didn't believe it. But enough people shared it, you know, just in case it was true. Or they shared it not because they thought it was true, but because they thought it was funny. But as people began to see that story shared more and more on their feeds, they began to give it a second look. And so they began to believe it, even if they had initially thought it absurd. And that is how um, disinformation can spread so rapidly. Give us an example. Are there any popular lies that are being repeated right now? For example, are there any common falsehoods that are playing out on, say, your Twitter feed? My Twitter feed has been uh, consumed by the war in Afghanistan the last few weeks. And there are plenty of falsehoods coming out of um, the tragedy that's playing out there. So, Emerson, can you give me a few examples? One thing that the, the Taliban are repeating again and again is that they, uh, they have a new face, that they're going to be um, kind and supportive to women who seek education, things like that. Things that, are, that we know are lies, but because their um, propaganda operation is so effective and because they repeat the claim again and again, you do see it begin to um, sort of penetrate uh, Western media. The Taliban isn't exactly known for embracing modern technology. So how do they go about spreading their messages? Is it through memes on social media, or are we just talking like good old fake news? So in the case of the Taliban specifically, it's mostly just press statements, which are then um, amplified by a broader network of supporters. But in general, when we, we talk about how false claims spread it's usually via a headline, just a few words, and then an image. It's pretty bare bones, huh? But you don't need fancy frills to get the job done, I guess. You hear a lot about uh, things like deep fakes, um, 
AI generated uh, uh, false videos or images, um, the kinds of things that can bend or manipulate reality. All that sort of sci-fi tech is real and it's very scary. But frankly, when we talk about disinformation, um, you don't have to worry about all that stuff because we are just as susceptible to very easy easily doctored falsehoods. So you're still susceptible to old tricks you may have thought you could spot a mile away. Many of us think we only have to look out for the incredibly advanced tech out there, but old tools work because disinformation gets its power through psychology. Coming up next, Emerson and I are going to be talking about the ways that liars try to hack our brains. Yeah, stay right where you are. Welcome back to Kim Commando Explains. So we're learning all about disinformation. Companies are shelling out big money to spread lies. So are governments around the world. Now, of course, and this goes for terrorists too. When we last left off, Emerson was telling us that we're all susceptible to all kinds of falsehoods. And most of us worry about high-tech tools like deep fakes. But in reality, an old-fashioned picture tweak or even a fake headline can trick us just as easily. Emerson, Tell us more about how these messages are exactly spread. Uh, via just an image that is cropped, that leaves something out, via a false headline, uh, via a very simple bit of Photoshop. Um, unfortunately, we, we don't need high-tech uh, means of deception because we are vulnerable enough to uh, uh, the very basic stuff. Right. And speaking of vulnerabilities, I want to take a moment to step into the shoes of one of these disinformation spreaders. So say I'm crafting my own disinformation campaign. I've come up with a slogan or a lie that needs to be repeated. So what format should I choose? Should I spread it through images, maybe videos, headlines, something else? What would help me spread my message to as many people as possible? Basic is best. Images and a few words. It is a remarkable statistic, but it's true that about two-thirds of the links that are shared on Facebook are never clicked on. I would tend to believe that, that two-thirds of the links that are shared on Facebook are never clicked on. It just seems to make sense. At least if you want to retweet something on Twitter you haven't read, it says to you, hey, do you want to read this first? So if you want to deceive a lot of people, you uh, can link to a website. It, unfortunately, it doesn't really matter what it is, um, but just have that image and headline. And if it catches fire, a lot of people are going to believe it without ever trying to validate it. So when people are planning these disinformation campaigns, do they pick a particular group to target? Well, let's go back to the example of the Taliban. When they cross their fingers behind their back and say, hey, everything's great. Women can get an education. We're not going to stop them. Who are they really targeting that message towards? Mm -hmm. so, so in the case of the Taliban, they are speaking to Western journalists. I think the women in Afghanistan know better, but they really aren't the audience for this stuff. In general, disinformation campaigns always target a particular community. Because that's how you get the most, the most spread, the most impact. How about an example, Emerson? When Russia targeted the 2016 U.S. election and masqueraded as Americans on Facebook, 
they pretended to be African-American activists, Bernie Sanders supporters, Trump supporters, hardcore police supporters, and guns rights activists, and neo-Confederates. They really ran the gamut. But something, the, the pattern there is that they were trying to catch fire with their disinformation in a specific community. Because when you reach one of those communities, when you, your story wins trust in that community, it can spread very rapidly through members, thanks to uh, the power of homophily that we discussed earlier. Russia covered every single base they could, it seems like. I mean, they wanted to reach out to all sorts of people, sway as many folks as they could. But I want to dive a bit deeper into the role of demographics. Which group of people is the most likely to fall for disinformation? The most vulnerable demographic group are folks over the age of 65. It has nothing to do with the critical reasoning skills of older people. It's just that they are newer to the internet and social media. In the year 2000, just about uh, one-sixth of older Americans used the internet. Now, we're looking at about two-thirds. There have been a few studies now of the susceptibility of different age groups to disinformation. And uh, the biggest study to date found that that older folks were four times more likely to share a hoax that they encountered uh, than people between the age of 18 and 29. And again, the reason for this is not because of a a lack of critical reasoning skills. It's that um, many older Americans came to the Internet a generation or two later than younger people. A lot of older Americans joined Facebook, for instance, in 2013 or 2014 uh, to speak to their grandchildren at the same time that their grandchildren were leaving Facebook for other social media services. And unfortunately, the the people, older folks who joined social media, they entered a world where uh, viral marketers and disinformation peddlers had had years to perfect... um, their uh, their techniques to figure out how to lie and have that lie spread as far as possible. So you had relatively unprepared people entering an environment where there were basically a, a ton of sharks who had just been waiting and waiting uh, for the opportunity to have new victims. I've heard it said that younger people are also pretty susceptible to falling for disinformation and scams. I mean, is that true or are they just better at recognizing it. So young people are not good at recognizing truth from falsehood online, but they do have one critical advantage that older people don't. And that is that younger people don't believe anything online. They are extremely critical across the board because they've grown up uh, in an environment where there's always been a Facebook or an Instagram where people have always lied for social media clout and exaggerated Um, and given a different impression online than what exists in the real world. Basically, young kids aren't good at um, picking out, you know, the the truth from the falsehood, but they have such a high bar in order to believe anything that it has equipped them in a way that um, older Americans, unfortunately, are not equipped. So the bottom line is this. Be critical. It's better to be safe as sorry. I know it's an old cliche, but it works. I mean, even if you don't recognize the truth, 
at least you won't fall for the lies. Now, Emerson, before I let you go, I want to touch on just one more thing. Disinformation is a part of a psychological war, and that's always been around ever since ancient times. Now, can you elaborate? Can you talk a little bit about how modern tech is breathing new life into these age-old tactics? War is just a political contest. It's a contest between people with two different perspectives who can't resolve their differences by any other means. And when you're in a war, you are trying to convince the other side that you're going to win, that you can hurt them, uh, but they could also surrender and you could win that way. And of course, there's social media. What role does social media play in all this? What social media has done is uh, radically changed how people in war can talk to each other. It used to be you could only talk via uh, letters or via one-way radio, um, which was complicated because of uh, jamming and all sorts of other things. Now there is a strange um, sort of a new battleground online where both sides in a conflict can go and speak to each other, even if they would... Uh, do violence to the other person if they saw them in real life. And not only that, but it, it's not just a conversation between these two sides. There's also a global audience who are watching at all times. Or um, the population in which the war is taking place, they're also watching this ongoing discussion. So all of a sudden, uh, disinformation campaigns and you know, uh, inventing or exaggerating your victor victories, uh, spreading your war propaganda, all of this matters a lot more. Because if you do it well enough, you really can convince the other side to stop fighting, um, that you're uh, impossible to stop, that you are going to win. This is actually exactly what happened in Afghanistan. The Afghan army largely disappeared without a fight. And this wasn't because the Afghan army wasn't brave. It was because the Afghan army was no longer paid. Uh, they had no air support. Many of them were starving. And every time they looked online, they saw a stream of Taliban victories. And they also were receiving, being bombarded with messages from the Taliban saying, uh, you know, if you surrender, you and your family won't be harmed. You can even keep your weapon. Just go home. And so many of them did. I know most of us use social media just to relax and maybe take our mind off of things. But some influential folks use these popular platforms to change history. They, they are putting these well-placed lies. And like Emerson said, this is happening right now before our very eyes. And that's why you need to know about it. All right, maybe you saw the story online. A Wisconsin woman accidentally shot a friend while using the laser sight on a handgun to play with a cat. Yes, a 19-year-old woman said she was visiting a friend's apartment where a 20-year-old man had brought in a handgun. Okay, the woman, who a witness said had been drinking, picked up the handgun, turned on the laser sight, and was pointing it at the floor to get the cat to chase it. When the gun went off, the man who was standing in the doorway was shot in the thigh. So, fake news or not, that's true. Unfortunately, people are dumb. What about a short and blurry video clip showing a woman relaying a story about 29 scientists who were reportedly killed by artificial intelligence-controlled robots in Japan? Yes, the actual headline said, four robots killed 29 scientists. 
or that Germany is going to make self-driven cars illegal on their highways. It's going to be called the Autobahn. Uh, Yeah, I'm sorry. Both of those, fake news. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm sure you learned just a few things. And just a quick reminder, make sure that you rate, review, you follow, you subscribe to all of our podcasts. And by the way, this is not the Kim Commando Show podcast. In order to get that, you can go to Apple and you subscribe in your podcast player there or head over to getkim.com. Once again, that's getkim.com. Oh, and one more thing. Do not ghost me on social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, and guess where? Instagram.com slash Kim Commando, Twitter.com slash Kim Commando, note the trend, Facebook.com slash Kim Commando, and you can figure it out. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. <laughs>